Please turn to the book of Genesis. I'll be reading chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Father, let us see, love, cherish Your sovereign act in our text this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the last 13 weeks, we spent in the first 11 chapters of Genesis laying the foundations of redemptive history. The foundational themes that will constantly flow throughout from beginning to end. We have seen that God, who always was, infinitely and eternally glorious, created for the main goal of glorifying Himself forever in human beings. Then we saw the fall of man. That in Adam and Eve, every human being, which includes all of us, have been born into original sin. Have been born sinners. Broken cut off from relationship with God and hanging under justice, which only means wrath. And we saw in Genesis 3.15 God's purpose to save people from wrath to Himself to glorify His name forever when He said, I will put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And now we come to chapter 12 of Genesis. And what happens starting now is pivotal for the shaping of the entire rest of world history and beyond for eternity. God has promised He's going to do something. The seed of the serpent's going to crush, excuse me, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is acting. He's planning. He has been doing it for eternity past. And he starts to unfold it. And what does he do? He zeroes in on one idol-worshipping pagan. Grabs him, so to speak, and declares His promises of what He will do to Him, for Him, and through Him. And what God covenanted, meaning the pact, this contract, a blood covenant with Abraham has ramifications for the rest of human history. He says, Now the Lord said, 12.1, to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you I will bless all the families of the earth. I just want, let's feel this. Let's feel the last 13 weeks. No, God is unfolding and creating history. And from our perspective, out of the blue, one day, this happens. From God's eternal perspective, He has purposed it and planned exactly this for eternity. To grab a hold of one pagan idolater and speak with life creating words, I will bless you. And I, God, will make of you a great nation and all the families of the earth who you, Abraham, will be blessed. And with that begins the history of the people of Israel. Let's pause for a moment because what's going on here in redemptive history, picture the timeline. There's a beginning of history in creation. And there will be an end. And one thing happens before another. And another thing happens after another. We, we are on that timeline even this morning. Think about it. What God did. He went to one idolater. And He made a covenant just with Him. Why didn't He just send Jesus then in Genesis 12? Why did not the eternal Son of God become incarnate way back then and die on a cross for the sins of the world and be resurrected from the dead? And then, go God, back in Genesis 12, give the Great Commission then. But he did. He just called one man and he made a covenant with him. And not only that, we see the patience of God. She's up to something. And then finally, this one man's going to have a son. He's going to have a few, but no, it's going to be through Isaac, your son, that the covenant's going to be passed down, not through Ishmael. And then with Isaac, not through Esau, but with Jacob who becomes Israel. Then the twelve tribes. And then, 400 years. Think about 400 years. Jamestown wasn't founded yet. 400 years and there's nothing at the end of Genesis to begin of Exodus. And then one day, Moses is born. And God uses Moses. And He gives the law. And finally, after 40 years, He brings the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, into the land He promised. And then there's another thousand-year history. Now, think about it. 
God, why didn't you send Jesus? You're God. You're the one that wrote the book. You're the one that is planned and is unfolding redemptive history. You could have done it any way you wanted, but He didn't. He calls Abraham, and then 2,000 years almost of history of this one tiny, small group of people who, after 2,000 years, finally, as Paul said, in the perfect timing, God sent forth His Son through Israel, born of a woman, born under the law. As we're going to progress in the weeks to come, this is the reality. Christ is still very future. Why? God is purposeful here. But note this this morning as we look at this glorious promise, the covenant God makes with Abraham, it is extremely important for every one of us that claim to be Christians today. Paul clearly said these things were written about Abraham for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So what I want to do this morning, let's break it up into three parts. I want to ask the big question. In the covenant that God made with Abraham, what were the promises? In covenants, there is always, I promise on my side of the covenant to do this. What were those promises? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, is the covenant of Abraham conditional? Is there a condition that Abraham must meet? And then thirdly, who are the true seed descendants of Abraham? First, I want to talk about the promises and break that up into three. The first thing we see that God comes to Abraham. He didn't ask Abraham what do you want. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And the first promise is this. Abraham you and your physical descendants after you, I'm going to give you many and make you a great nation. Not only that, I'm going to give you a piece of land in this earth. For instance, Genesis 15:5, quote, "And God brought Abram outside and said, "Look at the heaven and number the stars." If you were able to number them, think about it clear night. Then God said, So shall your offspring be. In Genesis 13, 14, God says, Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. This is after God brought him from way up north in Ur of the Chaldees, down to sojourn with... He had a lot of money. He had a lot of servants. He had a wife. He had a nephew lot. And they're in the place that we call today Israel. And God says to him, and Abraham owned nothing there, never owned a piece of land except for the plot where he was going to be buried. And God said, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Then Genesis 15:18, "On that day the Lord made a covenant 
with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the first group of promises God makes. Abraham, you're going to have a posterity after you. And it's going to be big and it's going to be significant. And I'm going to give to you and to them land. The other promise, second promise, which doesn't come like that. I'm going to do that. It just shows up in the midst of the Abrahamic narrative. And it is Stunning. We have to feel it is stunning. And it's only one little verse. But that one little verse shows up all over the New Testament. Genesis 15.6 And Abraham believed God. And it was imputed to him as righteousness. And that's it. And most of you know, I, I know that verse, I know that verse. Why? Because Paul quotes it over and over. And he theologizes about it. For this sinful man like Adam and like Cain, to have God come to him one day and say, I, God, swear on my own self, I will do this. I will bless you. And then, because Abraham believed, oh, we, that could just fly over our head. Oh, yeah, we all believe in God. Oh, no. Because he had faith. That faith was the means through which God said, You are righteous. You know, when Genesis 15 6 comes up, remember the context. It was ten years earlier, Genesis 12 1. When God called Abraham to leave his people and sojourn to the land that he's going to give them. Ten years pass. He and his wife wanted babies. Couldn't have them. Tried and tried and tried. And now, beyond that, they're getting older and older, even if they were together fertile. Probably that's past. And Abraham says, I have no heir, God. Only Eliazar, my number one slave, my servant. He's the heir of all my stuff. And that's where God comes in in Genesis 15.4 and says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look at the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. In other words, I am going to do the impossible for you. God's going to act for Abraham. Now then, the next, don't miss it. What Abraham does from then is this. He looks away from himself. He looks away from his ability to produce an offspring. He looks at his age and the impossibility through all the years for Sarah to be pregnant, and he trusts a promise. 
from the eternal God. And God says that faith, that trust, is the means through which I will declare you to be forgiven of all your sins. Declare you to stand before me righteous. And Abraham believed God. And it was credited to his account as righteousness. It doesn't mean that Abraham did not sin nor will sin again. He will. It means, here's this promise right there couched in this story, that Abraham's sins are put away. They're forgiven in the sense that God will not hold Abraham's past sins nor future sins against him to condemn him. It's right there in the text. Now you think, oh, isn't that great? Well, it is great, but that's not the goal. The goal that God's enmity, righteous hatred for sin and for sinners has been moved out of the way between him and Abraham. God has reconciled Himself to a sinful man. Which means now, Abraham, because your sin is not in the way, you stand before Me perfectly righteous. He isn't in Himself righteous at all. God declares it to be such because of Christ. That means now I, God, can be for you. I can work for you. I'm going to bless you. I make great and astronomical promises to you. That's why forgiveness of sins is so precious and so important. We need to know this in our day and age. I was speaking to someone recently when it comes to even witnessing to people, you're a Christian, let's all pray. Okay, I'll pray, pray with me. It... Be careful. Everyone thinks they're okay with God. Well, I can pray. No problem. A Christian person ought to be careful on what they insinuate on how we do things and what we tell people. Abraham was declared righteous. This miracle happened. He became the friend of God. His wrath was removed. Now, what am I going to Listen to how it is stated in Genesis 17, 7. God says, Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to what, God? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. He must mean that there is a way in which He will be your God. In a way that He is not God in that sense to others. Abraham, 
I will bless you. I will take all my omnipotence and my power and my energy and my wisdom and pursue you with mercy and grace throughout all your life. And not only that, but for the life to come. Why do I say that? Because the one covenanting Himself, the one making these promises to Abraham is the eternal God. For Abraham to be blessed only for the 175 years that he lives and then die and that's it and it's over makes no sense for one thing. But the other thing, well, yeah, that's a stretch, Joe. Then I'll just go to Jesus because Jesus didn't think it was a stretch. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus said, And as for the resurrection, bodily resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Jesus says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Thus, there is a future resurrection. God will be there. That's what Jesus' point is for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob. Forever. Not just this life, but for the life to come. That's that second great promise. God justifies, declares righteous, forgives the sins of the ungodly Abraham so that He could be for Him and bless Him and pursue Him, as the psalm says, with mercy and goodness throughout this life and the life to come. The third and final group of promises is that, Abraham, it's not only you. I will bless you, and it is with you I'm making the covenant, but you're not going to be this little cul-de-sac where it just stops. It is through you, Abraham and Israel, the people, that I will bless the entire earth. Genesis 12, 2-3, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing and in you, not just your family, Israel, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Even though God here now with the Abrahamic covenant starts this with one individual, He has the entire human race in view forever. A clear plan. A clear purpose for the centuries and even the millennia which was to come. Those three great promises. Abraham, I'm going to do the miracle and you're going to have your own posterity and I'm going to give to them a land. Secondly, you see it there. He, God, through this promise, justifies ungodly people. Saves them from their sin. And thirdly, not only Israel, but through them, God will bless 
people from every tribe, tongue, nation, race, skin color, culture, and religion. Second big question then now. Is this covenant with Abraham conditional? Think about it. The reason I want to bring... Well, one of the reasons, because it's, I think you need to address it in the text. But let me put a big parenthesis here. I want you to also think about the way that the term unconditional is used in today's church world a lot with Christian people. I think so many of us use God's unconditional love in a way that is blatantly unbiblical. God loves everybody unconditionally. Would he get that? But what's the most popular verse in all the Bible probably? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So that what? Well, that's a condition. Okay, now, now let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, leave and go. And I will bless. It's implicit there. Here's the question. What if Abraham thought, no, I'm not going to leave. Flip that switch up. I'm not going to leave. Would have he received the promise of the covenant? I don't think so. Now, here's why people struggle over these terms, conditional here and unconditional. I think there's confusion because it's based on a false assumption that's going on here in this question. They, some people would say and think this way, look, if you make the Abrahamic covenant conditional, in other words, God's promises that will, He promises that will come to pass, they're conditioned upon what Abraham does or how he responds, well, then the promises cannot be certain or sure to happen. If you say to a human being, I will do this, I will bless you and bless the whole world based upon whether you fulfill the condition, well then, God's promises are not really, therefore, absolute. They're not absolutely certain to happen and to come about. Make sense? The false assumption there is that human beings are autonomous, auto, self-existing, and utterly self-determining agents or beings which God has no control over. If that were true, then to say the Abrahamic covenant is conditional means God may or may not get His wish. But instead of spending a whole sermon like I have before on that issue, I just want to turn to one text. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. And listen to the clarity of this text. And I, God, will put My Spirit within you and I will cause you 
to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my voice. Look, if God puts His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into a person that causes them to walk in His statutes, in, in this sense, and thus fulfill the condition of the covenant, then the promises of the covenant are both conditional and certain of fulfillment. If God is God and has the power, the ability, and the right to commit Himself to work on behalf of Abraham so that Abraham is changed to produce faith in his heart to trust the promise, which is a condition, if God can do that, then there is no inconsistency in saying that the promises are absolutely 100% guaranteed to happen. Absolutely certain. And they are also conditional. In other words, what it was implied in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Abraham, go to the land and I will bless, is made explicit. This is why now, because we've got to deal with the sentences of the Bible. I, now, I hope I gave you a little bit of foundation there. Turn to chapter 22, verses 16 to 18. Because in this text, God with Abraham makes it crystal clear here, if you just read the sentences, that God bringing the promises about to Abraham is conditioned on his obedience. Remember the context here. Now it's years later. Finally he got Isaac through Sarah. And Isaac is about 13. And God has promised him to give him the promises through Isaac, your only son. And now God says, take Isaac, your only son, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Kill him. Abraham so grew in his faith and dependence and trust in God that if God says it, who else am I to go to? Who else has the words of life? You promised to give me posterity through Isaac, so if I kill him in obedience, somehow you're going to raise him from the dead. It's exactly what God says through the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament that Abraham's faith meant. And so, he's about ready to do it, and of course, God's not for human sacrifice. He stops him with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord comes in chapter 22, verses 16 to 18, and listen to the words. By myself, Abram, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because, here's a causal, the word because in English is causal. Here's the reason, the condition filled. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, therefore I will surely bless you. And I will surely Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate, the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall be, excuse me, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Comma. Why? Because you have obeyed my 
voice. He says, I promise to bring about the promises of my covenant because you have obeyed. Conditional. If you turn to Genesis 18, verse 19, God says, For I have chosen Abram that he may command his children and his household after him. Here it is. Listen to the condition. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Why? So that, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what He has promised him. If the promises made to Abraham are to be fulfilled in that text, then the people from Abraham down the line must keep the way of the Lord. But, we see that God is God and He will bring about His promises. Therefore, the promises are absolutely sure to happen. And they are conditional. Now, careful. Joe, are you saying Abraham received the blessing, received forgiveness of sins, and all the promises based upon works of the law? Are you saying it's a covenant of works as opposed to a covenant of of grace. No, no, no. When the Bible, and especially the New Testament, speaks negatively about the idea that you could merit something, earn something, earn the promises, earn forgiveness, earn eternal life, earn anything from God based upon works, by works there, it means in the sense of an employee who goes to work for a needy employer. When I'm painting a house and I hire an employee, I do it for their expertise that they have and they give to me because I need it and thus they earn from me the paycheck. That is always a sinful way to approach God. There's another type of obedience. The kind when you obey, not the employer who tells you to do what you need to do, but the way you obey a physician. You go to the physician not to offer your expertise, in some craft, you go to the physician because you're sick and you go to him because of his expertise. And you say, what's wrong with me? And tell me what to do to make it right. And so the doctor does. And when you go and fulfill the prescription, that is the evidence that you have faith in that doctor. That you trust His expertise. You still obeyed the doctor's prescription. It is, it's very different than the idea, I have something and I'm going to do it for you and you need to pay me. I've earned my wages. 
give it to me. When the Bible talks about works, or we mean covenant of works, oh no, that's not the obedience that Abraham offered. Turn, please turn to Book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 3, because I want to turn to a text where now the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is interpreting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I'll start with chapter 4 of Romans, verse 3, and read through verse 5. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. End quote. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift or grace. No. But as what is due. It's not grace. You owe him. When I pay an employee at the end of the week, it's not grace. I owe him. They are not counted as a gift, but as what is his due. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but instead trusts Him, the doctor, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. See, in verse 4, to the one who works His wages, you can feel it, Paul's clearly meaning an employee type of work. Wages, merit, Earn. They're not a gift. You owe Him. God never owes anybody. That's why it's sinful to ever approach Him with that mindset that you would do something that would indebt Him to you. Verse 5, though, gives the correct answer about Abraham. And to the one who does not work like Abraham, didn't work. You've got to note this. Remember, we just read a few texts that Abraham obeyed. And that's the reason God gave him the grace of the promises. But here, Paul's interpretation is, and to the one who does not work, but trusts Him who justifies, makes righteous, declares perfectly righteous before Him in standing, declares righteous the ungodly. His faith, His faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is saying clearly, do you want to have God's promise like Abraham? Then don't work. He didn't say, well, to the one who works, oh, but he at least adds faith. He didn't say that. It's fine to work as long as you've got some faith with it. He didn't say that. Actually, in Galatians, he condemns that as a false gospel. He says to the one who does not ever think of himself as an employee before God, does not work. Don't work for God in that way. Don't ever think you're working for God. And thus, because you offered some autonomous gift 
or skill. God now, at the end of the week, is indebted to give you a paycheck of blessing to the one who does not work, but does something very different in its nature. Trusts Him who justifies the ungodly. Trusts His promise like Abraham. And as we see in the Abrahamic narrative, obedience. God gives you a command, go sacrifice Isaac. Leave your land, go to this land. Obedience is the necessary outcome of what it means to be truly trusting in God who gives commands and promises. And so in that sense, and only in that sense, do I mean the Abrahamic covenant is conditional. It's conditioned, and the condition to be met in order for Abraham to inherit the promises of God, which are God's grace given to him in response to his faith. In that sense, the Abrahamic covenant is just like the new covenant, which often is spoken of as conditioned upon a response of faith to the grace of God's promise. Never on works of merit. Always on faith. Which necessarily obeys. John 3.36, again, here's the sentences, and we want to be able to believe them. That's why I'm being very theological here this morning. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, there it is, obey Him, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Is it believe or is it obey the Son? There has been a separation of those two. They are distinct but you ultimately can't separate them. If Abraham truly believes the God of creation who spoke to him and said, leave your people and go, and I will bless you, and I will make your posterity a great nation. If he truly believes it, then he will go. The obedience is the evidence of real faith. One more. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 in the New Testament says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to everybody who obeys Him. So, the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant are both 
covenants of grace because they're based in God acting and giving gracious promises that are to be received with a heart of trust or faith. A heart which trusts His faithfulness. I'm going to do, I'm going to take the 60 or 90 seconds and, and do this. For some of you, this might not mean anything. For others of you who are more theologically oriented, I want to make this clarity here. There. there are things in the New Testament and in the Old Testament with God towards man that are unconditional. For instance, if you were going to talk specifically about the Bible doctrine of election, it is unconditional. Meaning there are no conditions whatsoever a human being can meet in order for God to elect them. The doctrine of effectual call or new birth, that thing called regeneration happening, is unconditional. There are no prior conditions that a human being can meet to cause God, therefore, to give them that. The resurrection of the dead, eternal salvation, is conditional. You must meet the condition of coming to faith in Christ. In the same way, Abraham must have faith in order to inherit the promises. But as we saw, oh, thank God. God, when you come to faith, you see God did that. And it's sure. Sanctification is conditional. We can go on and on. So, let me close the parenthesis then. That's the big second point. First point, God makes promises. Second point, they are conditioned upon faith. The faith of Abraham. And this is why the New Testament takes Abraham, what we're seeing this morning, as the model and the father of every Christian's faith. It's no different. It's the essence. Faith is a heart that becomes dependent in trust in God's promises to us. Finally, here's the third question. Who are the true descendants, seed of Abraham? In Genesis 17.4, God said, Behold, My covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be the father of many nations. The text is clear that the seed, the descendants, the offspring of Abraham will not ultimately be restricted to the Jewish people. In other words, Abraham will father descendants from many tribes, peoples, races, languages throughout the earth. When we turn to the New Testament, These things, like what I'm just saying there, which are there, they're hinted at in the Old Testament, you come to the New Testament and they become crystal clear. For instance, go to Romans chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 6 to 8. 
Here's the context of the Apostle Paul. He's come to the place now in chapter 9 where he's agonizing over the problem that many of his fellow Jews in the world in his time, he himself is a Jew, he is agonizing over this reality that now the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, has come. That the vast majority of the Jews in his first century preaching are rejecting Christ. Are remaining in unbelief and are thus under God's curse. That's the context here. He says, this is happening and he's very biblical. And he says, but like me, the vast majority of them aren't believing and they are the physical offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob who is Israel. Problem, he thinks, for us. And so he asks the question, does that mean God's promise, God's Word failed? Pick up in verse 6, chapter 9. But it is not he says, as though the Word of God has failed. Why, Paul? Because not all who are physically descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham. Because they are His offspring. No, say it again. Not all are children of Abraham because they are His physical offspring. But the text says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul concludes, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. Paul's clear, isn't he? God's promise to the descendants, the offspring of Abraham, have not failed. Even though many of the physical descendants, the vast majority of the Jews in his day, are cursed. And cut off in unbelief. Why, Paul? He says, because the promises were never made to every physical descendant of Abraham. He says, just like Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Just like Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the child to inherit the promise, not Esau. And so he draws the conclusion ever since then, 
throughout the history of Israel, God has always passed down the promise not to every physical Israelite, but to a remnant. And the rest were not of the promise. They're not the seed. Even though they can trace their physical ancestry back through Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. They're not the seed because they are not of the same faith, heart, trust in God and His promises which gives forth obedience. That's why the John the Baptist, now think about it, here we go, boom, you open up the New Testament. Here's the Jew, John the Baptist, prophet of God. And what does he say to his fellow Jews? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Stunning. Stunning. That's why Jesus, when He's speaking to His fellow Jews who rejected Him, the text says, says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. In other words, many Israelites are not of the true seed of Abraham which will inherit the promises. Now, that's what Paul's saying. And Paul, part of him, did not like this. That's why he started off chapter 9 of Romans. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for my fellow Jews. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ so that they might be saved. It bugged him, but God revealed to him His plan of salvation. And it unfolds in the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10, and in chapter 11. And Paul saw God's plan was this, that because of the vast majority of Jews since the day of Christ have been cut off in unbelief, that has opened the doors wide to bless all the families of the earth from every tribe, people, tongue, religious, cultural background, race, throughout the earth. That's what he argues in chapter 11. Let me just make one quick thing. Then he gets to the point, at the end, there will be a day where God will cause all the Jews who were alive then to be saved, to come to saving faith in their Messiah in chapter 11. But as we close, let's just see the clarity of this in Galatians chapter 3 now. Of Paul's thinking and theology of this precious Abrahamic covenant to which, if you're a believer, it's talking about you. You are the heir. You're a child of Abraham. Chapter 3, start with verses 7 to 9. Paul says, 
know then that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, oh, save, forgive you of your sins, put you perfectly righteous before Him because of Jesus Christ, God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith. He preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jump down to verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Finally, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So who are the seed of Abraham if you have come to saving faith? If Christ and the Gospel of Christ on this side of the cross in the hearing of your ears has seemed precious to you, that I believe that. And I say it that way on purpose, not I believe that. I believe that. It's my life. It's precious. That's called faith. And if that's happened to you, you are of the seed of Abraham. And what was promised to Abraham is promised to you. That you can be justified by faith in Christ, forgiven of all your sins, so that now God is for you. 100% in everything. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. He means it when He says, Romans 8.28, for all things, and this is why I say He's for you. You mean in pain, in sickness, in heartache, in tragedy, He's for me? Yes. None of that is judgment. It's all working together for the good of those who love Him and are of the seed of Abraham. 4,000 years ago, out of the blue, God zeroed in on one pagan idolater and started doing His work. And we sit here today as a fulfillment of the promise that He made to Abraham. And as unfolded, as Paul says in Galatians, Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed, offspring of Abraham. And if you're in Christ, you belong to Abraham, and all his promises are yours. And what promise is this? I'm not going to turn near yet, but I'm just going to, really quickly, what, just hold on, Serge. In chapter 15, 
you go back to Abraham and Abraham said, how can I know that these things are going to be true? How can I, these, they seem impossible, God. And God said, go grab this kind of an animal, this kind of an animal, this kind of an animal, a couple of birds. Take those animals and kill them. Cut them in half. And set a pathway. Part of the half on one side of those animals and the other half so there's a little pathway. And he did, and he obeyed. And he waited. And it got dark and he waited and he's shooing away birds not to eat his dead carcasses. And then in the middle of the night when it was dark, God manifested Himself in a theophany through this torch fire, burning oven, and walked through those dead carcasses of a blood sacrifice. God was saying, as the Hebrew writer says, I'll tell you how you can know that I will bring these promises to that they cannot not happen is because I swear not on my mother's grave. Not on heaven or on the earth, but I swear on my very existence that if I don't bring these promises to pass, may I be killed and cut in two like these dead animals. Or we can say it this way from this side of the cross. How can we know, God, Romans 8.32 If God is for us, who can be against us? God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also by Christ, through Christ, with Christ, graciously give to us all things. Oh, Father, may You mercifully grow our faith to be more and more like the faith of our father Abraham. Even as Abraham grew strong in faith, may you do that for every soul in here. May we pray in our closets, God, grow my trust in your promises on a day-by-day basis. Oh, Father, we desire so to be sanctified in Your mercy. We desire to have the work of Your Spirit cause us to be able to sacrifice our only child, though You would never ask it if we needed to. Because we can trust You're not only the God of the dead, but of the living, and thus of all eternity and of the resurrection. So Father, by Your Spirit, cause us to trust in Your promises on a day-by-day basis over against all the lying, deceptive, short-sighted promises of sin. In Jesus' name, Amen.